0: Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. But first, your true crime headlines. Accused Golden State Killer Joseph DeAngelo is expected to strike a deal with prosecutors later this month, agreeing to plead guilty to the rape and murder charges against him in exchange for a life sentence. 74-year-old D'Angelo was arrested in 2018 after DNA confirmed him as the notorious Golden State Killer who terrorized California in the 1970s and 1980s. He is believed to be responsible for more than 100 burglaries, 50 rapes, and at least 13 murders. Prosecutors from six California counties are participating in D'Angelo's prosecution, Those prosecutors released a joint statement which alluded to a possible plea deal, noting the massive scope of the case and the advanced age of many of the victims and witnesses. D'Angelo, a former police officer, was able to evade capture for more than four decades. Police were able to identify him after they began working with a Virginia-based company called Parabon NanoLabs, which uses a technique called genetic genealogy to solve crimes A DNA sample from the 1980 double murder of a Ventura County couple was used to create a profile on a public ancestry database, which was then used to identify D'Angelo through his distant relatives. A June 29th hearing is scheduled in the case, and it is expected that a guilty plea could be announced at that time. A former attorney was convicted of murder in the 2006 cruise ship death of his ex-wife. 62-year-old Lonnie Lauren Cacantes, was found guilty of murder for financial gain in the killing of 52-year-old Mickey Kanasaki. The pair had been on a Mediterranean cruise at the time of Kanasaki's death, and Kakantes told investigators that he believed she had fallen overboard from the balcony of their cabin. Her body was recovered by a research vessel, and an autopsy was performed. The examination concluded that there was no water in her lungs and that she had severe hemorrhaging around her neck, which was consistent with strangulation. Kakantis and Kanesaki divorced in 2002 after seven years of marriage. That same year, Kakantas met a woman named Amy Glynn and began an affair with her, although he was still living in the Southern California home he shared with his ex-wife. He married Amy in Las Vegas in 2005, but eventually returned to California to reunite with Kanasaki. It was after his return to California that he began to plan the Mediterranean cruise, which friends say was out of character for the thrifty workaholic. During the trial, prosecutors laid out evidence of premeditation, including questions that Kakantis posed to a friend about surveillance cameras and security measures on cruise ships, and his insistence on a room with a balcony. It is believed that Cacantes wanted to kill Kanasaki so that he could have her million-dollar fortune. Cacantes left Italy the day after his wife's death, before her body had even been recovered, and immediately returned to Las Vegas to reunite with Amy Gwen. Cacantes will be sentenced in September and is facing a possible sentence of life in prison without parole. A T-shirt purchased on Etsy helped police identify a woman responsible for setting fire to a Philadelphia police vehicle on the first day of protests in the city, which were overwhelmingly peaceful, but gave way to riots and looting later that night. In an affidavit of probable cause, FBI agent Joseph Carpenter said that he was watching aerial footage broadcast on the TV news when he observed a woman shoving a burning piece of a police barricade into a Philadelphia Police Department SUV. He then saw an Instagram post, which included still photos of the moment, and he reached out to the account holder to request more photos. In those photos, he was able to identify a peace sign tattoo on the arm of the woman, who set the police vehicle ablaze agents searched through more photos from the day and they found more pictures of the same woman they tracked the t-shirt she was wearing to an etsy seller and found a five-star review from an account based in philadelphia with the username Cat Lore. they searched the internet for similar usernames and found a poshmark user with the display name lore-elizabeth which led them to a LinkedIn profile for someone with the name Laura Elizabeth who worked as a massage therapist. The website for the massage therapy company included a years-old video showing a woman with the same peace sign tattoo on her forearm. The phone number for that woman was cross-checked with state DMV records, which came back to a 33-year-old Philadelphia woman named Laura Elizabeth Blumenthal. Blumenthal is being held in federal custody and is facing two counts of felony arson. She faces up to 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine if she is convicted. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. But first, a quick break. To say that these are challenging times, would be an incredible understatement. So if you're thinking about talking to someone, it's time to get BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist so that you can start communicating in under 24 hours. The service is available for clients worldwide and has a broad range of expertise available. You can log into your account anytime and send a message directly to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so that you won't ever have to sit in a waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change your counselor if you need to. Plus, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read the testimonials for yourself, posted daily. Like this one, Written by a BetterHelp user after counseling with Berkeley Leary for two weeks. Berkeley has been a great resource for me, as she is always present in our conversations and helps to ensure that we focus on solutions that are in my best interests and that work well for me. I strongly recommend her services for anyone who is seeking support from an understanding and determined therapist. Or this one about Leanne Moore. In just a few weeks with Leanne, she asked more relevant and useful questions than I've experienced in months of in-person therapy. I always feel very heard, and her responses are quite thoughtful. She helps me stay on track to accomplish my goals and is very knowledgeable in her field. I would definitely recommend her. Visit betterhelp.com slash murderminute now. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P and joined the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Murder Minute listeners get 10% off their first month when they visit BetterHelp.com slash MurderMinute. Get BetterHelp now at B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash MurderMinute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. In 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma, was a growing city with a population of over 100,000 people. In the years following the First World War, crime rates and racial tensions were running high. Fueled by growing hostility to a surge in immigration and D.W. Griffith's 1915 film Birth of a Nation the white supremacist group the Ku Klux Klan was experiencing a revival. The KKK was now approaching approximately 4 million members nationwide, and in many parts of the United States, lynchings and other hate crimes were happening all too frequently. And more often than not, the law looked the other way. Tulsa, Oklahoma, like most southern cities, was strictly segregated and had roughly 10,000 black residents. They lived in a neighborhood called Greenwood, which included a thriving business district known as Black Wall Street. Greenwood was America's wealthiest black neighborhood. In Greenwood, wrote historian James S. Hirsch, Teachers lived in brick homes furnished with Louis XIV dining room sets, fine china, and Steinway pianos. On its main street were cafes, attorney's offices, auto shops, two theaters, pool halls, salons, grocery stores, furriers, bakeries, pharmacies, all of them black owned and operated. The neighborhood was home to some of the most successful black business owners, lawyers, and doctors in the country, including the most skilled black surgeon in America, Dr. A.C. Jackson, who had a net worth of $100,000, equivalent to nearly $1.5 million today. J.B. Stratford built a 54-room upscale hotel in Greenwood, complete with crystal chandeliers in an elegant banquet hall he had been born a slave. They had done everything that they were supposed to do in terms of the American dream, said Carol Anderson, professor of African American Studies at Emory University. You work hard, you save your money, you go to school, you buy property. And this is what they had done, under horrific conditions. White Tolson's were infuriated by the success of the black community. They commented, How dare these Negroes have a grand piano in their house, and I don't have a piano in my house, Michelle Brown, director of programs at the Greenwood Cultural Center, told CNN's Sarah Sidner. On May thirtieth, 1921, a black teenager, 19-year-old Dick Rowland, entered an elevator at the Drexel building, an office building on South Main Street, like he did almost every day. On this particular day, a few moments after the doors closed, the young white elevator operator, 17-year-old Sarah Page, screamed. The doors opened, and Dick Rowland ran. The police were called, and the next morning, he was arrested. Page herself didn't want to press charges, but the authorities did. By the time the teenager was taken into custody, rumors of what happened in the elevator were already spreading through Tulsa's white community. That Roland had raped Sarah Page, and that there would be a lynching. By afternoon, the Tulsa Tribune added fuel to the rumors by running a front page story reporting that police had arrested Roland for sexually assaulting Paige and that he had torn the girl's clothes. By nightfall, a mob of angry whites had gathered outside the courthouse, demanding that the sheriff hand over Dick Roland. Sheriff Willard McCullough refused and had his men barricade the top floor where Roland was being held. Between 9 and 9.30 p.m., a group of some 25 armed black men, many of them World War I veterans, went to the courthouse to assist in guarding the teenager against the lynch mob. Sheriff McCullough turned them away. But tensions and the crowd... Only grew. Some of the white mob tried unsuccessfully to break into the National Guard armory nearby. As fears that the teenager would be lynched spread through Greenwood, a group of around 75 armed black men returned to the courthouse. They now faced a white mob over 1,500 strong, many of them also armed. Shortly after 10 p.m., the first shots were fired. Two black men and ten white men lay dead or dying in the street. The events that followed have been described by historians as the deadliest domestic American outbreak since the Civil War and the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. Outnumbered, the black men retreated into Greenwood. Over the next several hours, a growing mob of white Tulsans, some of whom were deputized by law enforcement and given weapons by city officials, invaded Greenwood Attacking its black residents indiscriminately. Dr. Jackson, the celebrated surgeon, was murdered that night, along with untold numbers of his neighbors. The mob looted and burned over a thousand homes and businesses over an area of 35 city blocks. White Tulsans were now convinced that they were in a race war, fighting off a large-scale black uprising, and believed that this included an invasion of African-American reinforcements from nearby towns. Firefighters who tried to save Greenwood would later testify that the mob ran them out of the area, threatening them with guns. By the early morning hours of June 1st, Greenwood was destroyed. Governor Robertson declared martial law and called in the National Guard to help them put down what they called a, quote, Negro uprising. But by the time the National Guard arrived in Greenwood, there was almost nothing left of it. The riot was over. After the guardsmen helped firemen put out the fires, they imprisoned almost every black tulson. By June 2nd, 6000 people were under armed guard at the local fairgrounds. Some were held for as long as 8 days. Once released, they had no community to return to. They were homeless. Over 800 were treated for injuries, and reports of the number of casualties varied widely. Officials in Tulsa reported that 36 people were killed, 10 of them white. Walter Francis White of the NAACP traveled to Tulsa from New York to investigate. He concluded that around 50 whites were killed, while between 150 and 200 of Greenwood's black residents were murdered. The Red Cross estimated between 55 and 300 dead, but declined to give a formal estimate because of the number of undocumented burials, saying, quote, the number of dead is a matter of conjecture. Following the riots, all charges against Dick Rowland were dropped. The police concluded that Roland had simply tripped and stumbled into Paige and grabbed her arm or stepped on her foot, startling her. A white clerk on the first floor heard her scream and saw Roland run. It was the clerk who called the police and told them that Roland had assaulted Paige. Upon his release, Dick Roland immediately left Tulsa and never returned. Many former residents did the same. They abandoned the now uninhabitable Greenwood and moved away from Tulsa. Those who didn't leave lived in Red Cross tents for months, even through the harsh Oklahoma winter. W. Tate Brady, a Klansman and a founder of Tulsa, took control of the Tulsa Real Estate Exchange to block efforts to rebuild Greenwood by changing building codes to make the area industrial instead of residential. But former Greenwood residents fought back. One of them, lawyer Buck Colbert Franklin, took the case to the Oklahoma Supreme Court, which declared the city's efforts to block redevelopment unconstitutional. But while Greenwood did rebuild, it would never fully recover. In the years to come, Oklahoma's branch of the KKK grew in numbers and strength, and segregation in Tulsa only intensified. For decades, the events that took place from May 31st to June 1st, 1921, were covered up The Tulsa Tribune removed all record of the front-page story it ran on May 31st that incited the chaos, and scholars who later went looking for records of the riots in police and state militia archives found them missing as well. Oklahoma schools did not talk about it. In fact, newspapers didn't even print any information about the Tulsa race riot. U.S. Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma said to CNN, It was completely ignored. It was one of those horrible events that everyone wanted to sweep under the rug and ignore. Until recently, most Americans had never heard of Greenwood, its Black Wall Street, or its destruction. Were it not for survivors writing about their experience, gathering photographs, and recording the losses in property and the names of the dead, the event may have been completely erased. In 1971, a small group of survivors gathered with friends and family for a memorial service at Mount Zion Baptist Church, which rioters had burned to the ground during the massacre. That same year, the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce decided to commemorate the riot. But when they read the accounts and saw the photos gathered by Ed Wheeler, a host of a radio history program, detailing what actually happened. They refused to publish them. Wheeler then took the information to the two major newspapers in Tulsa. Both refused to run the story, and ultimately his article ran in a little-known publication called Impact Magazine, a new publication aimed at a black audience. Other attempts to bring the incident to light were similarly thwarted or suppressed, and for decades the story remained obscure. In 1996, on the riot's 75th anniversary, a service was again held at the Mount Zion Baptist Church, and a memorial was finally placed in front of the Greenwood Cultural Center. The following year, an official state government commission was formed to investigate the Tulsa Race Riot. The commission began investigating the witness testimonies, including accounts that numerous victims had been secretly buried in unmarked mass graves. In 2001, the report of the Tulsa Race Riot Commission concluded that between 100 and 300 people were killed, and more than 8,000 people made homeless over those 18 hours in 1921 and validated survivors' eyewitness accounts. Quote, These are not myths, not rumors, not speculations, not questioned. They are the historical record. In its section, Assessing State and City Culpability, the report concluded that police were not only passive, but noted their active involvement in the mob violence. Quote, Tulsa failed to take action to protect against the riot. More important, city officials deputized men right after the riot broke out. Some of those deputies, probably in conjunction with some uniformed police officers, were responsible for some of the burning of Greenwood. The report recommended actions for substantial restitution to the black residents. 1. Direct payment of reparations to survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Two, direct payment of reparations to descendants of the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Three, a scholarship fund available to students affected by the Tulsa Race Massacre. Four, establishment of of an economic development enterprise zone in the historic area of the Greenwood District, and, five, a memorial for the reburial of the remains of the victims of the Tulsa Race Massacre. According to the State Department of Education, as of the year 2000, it has required the topic in Oklahoma's history classes, and in U.S. history classes since 2004, and the incident is now included in Oklahoma history books as of 2009. In March of 2001, each of the 118 known survivors of the riot, still alive at the time, the youngest of whom was 85, were given a gold-plated medal bearing the state seal, as had been approved by bipartisan state leaders. On June 1, 2001, Governor Keating signed the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot Reconciliation Act into law. The act acknowledged that the event occurred, but failed to deliver any substantial reparations to the victims or their descendants. The act fell short of the commission's recommendations, but provided the following. More than 300 college scholarships for descendants of Greenwood residents creation of a memorial to those who died in the riot and economic development in Greenwood. In 2003, five elderly survivors filed suit against the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma based on the commission's 2001 findings. The federal district and appellate courts dismissed the suit, citing that the statute of limitations had been exceeded In 2007, they appealed to the U.S. Congress to extend the statute of limitations for the case, given the state and city's accountability for the destruction and the long suppression of material about it. The appeal failed. In October of 2010, a park was developed in the Greenwood area as a memorial to the victims of the riot. It was named for noted African-American historian... John Hope Franklin, son of lawyer Buck Colbert Franklin, whose ten-page written account of the riots was discovered in 2015. I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building. Down east Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top. Then another and another and another building began to burn from their top, he wrote. Lurid flames roared and belched and licked their forked tongues into the air. Smoke ascended the sky in thick black volumes and emitted all the planes. Now a dozen or more in number still hummed and darted here and there with the agility of natural birds of the air. The sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from, and I knew all too well why every burning building first caught from the top. I paused and waited for an opportune time to escape. Where, oh where, is our splendid fire department with its half-dozen stations? I asked myself. Is the city in conspiracy with the mob? In November of 2018, the 1921 Race Riot Commission was officially renamed to the 1921 Race Massacre Commission. Quote, Although the dialogue about the reasons and effects of the terms riot versus massacre are very important and encouraged, said Oklahoma State Senator Kevin Matthews, the feelings and interpretation of those who experienced this devastation as well as current area residents and historical scholars have led us to more appropriately change the name to the 1921 Race Massacre Commission. On May 29, 2020, on the eve of the 99th anniversary of the event, and at the onset of the protests following the death of George Floyd, the Human Rights Watch released a report titled The Case for Reparations in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a Human Rights Argument, demanding reparations for survivors and descendants of the violence. No one has ever been held responsible for these crimes, the impacts of which black Tulsans still feel today. Efforts to secure justice in the courts have failed due to the statute of limitations. Ongoing racial segregation, discriminatory policies, and structural racism have left black Tulsans, particularly those living in North Tulsa, with a lower quality of life and fewer opportunities. Generations of black Tulsans, especially massacre survivors and their descendants, have endured cumulative economic and moral losses and an inescapable cycle of pain, said Dryson Heath, the U.S. program advocacy officer at Human Rights Watch and author of the report. Reparations are the right thing to do, and the city of Tulsa and state of Oklahoma have the power to repair a century of harm. Otis G. Clark was 18 when his home was burned down by the mob during the massacre. Family and friends missing, jobs gone, Clark recalled in an interview before his death in 2012. The city took my grandmother's land and didn't give us nothing in return. We suffered, but Tulsa has given us nothing. Even to this day, nothing. The city of Tulsa continues to search for the mass graves. In December of 2019, forensic anthropologists and archaeologists, led by the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey at the University of Oklahoma, announced that they found two possible common graves on the grounds of Tulsa's Oakland Cemetery using ground-penetrating radar. Excavation has been postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.